for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. At some level, it's all about the brain. You and I are communicating because both of us presumably have brains. If we want to change the world, we use our brain to think about how to do it. If we want to change our own behavior, we have to use our brains in order to make different choices and engage in different actions. And so if we think about our brains wrong, then we're going to be very suboptimal in how we use them to achieve the things we want to achieve in the world. And the two main metaphors that our society thinks of the brain about is the brain is a computer sort of locked away. And wherever it goes, it just does the same thing. My laptop works the same whether I'm on a train in my office, in my bedroom, at a coffee shop, at the park. And the second metaphor is the brain is a muscle. So we have to work it to make it stronger, to make it better. And the truth is the brain is neither of these things. Today's guest, Annie Murphy-Paul, whose book, The Extended Mind, kind of explains all this and is really a user's manual for how to increase the power of our brain exponentially, not through mind hacks or brain hacks, but by using the world around us and even our own bodies, has gifted us a user's manual to become more effective in our own lives and to help the people around us become more effective in theirs. We have a wonderful conversation. She's witty, generous, wise, uh, well-spoken, brilliant writer. I think you're going to love the book, and I hope you really enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, Annie Murphy-Paul, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, thanks, Al. I'm really glad to be here. This is um, one of my favorite books in the last t like long amount of time that I can remember liking books. It's called The Extended Mind, and I'm so grateful to you for writing it. Oh, thanks for your kind words. I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. So, yep. And, you know, I was struggling this morning because it's as I, I wrote to you, like it's taken me such a long time to read it. <laughs> like usually I can, I can kind of like zip through books and kind of like, Oh, get a couple of ideas, but like each chapter really should have been its own book. Mm. Yeah. There's like, a lot in there. There's a lot in there. <laughs> so it, it took me so long. It's like, you know, they like painting the bridge that's so long when you finished putting the last <laughs> lick of paint, you got to go back and start painting it. <laughs> so I actually had to start rereading the first five chapters just to remember uh -huh. what was in them. Um, but first, so it's a book about kind of the mind and the brain and cognition mm -hmm. and how we think. And it takes a very different approach than anything I'd seen before. So I'm really mm -hmm. curious, like what what got you interested in writing it? And even even thinking like when you like I'm looking at like all the cool things you teach us, like mm -hmm. before you knew they were there, what mm -hmm. made you think like, there's a there there that yeah. I want to write about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually set out to write a much more conventional book. I was going to write a book about the science of learning. And that's a topic I got interested in uh, because I have two kids. And at the time that I started writing about the science of learning, they were starting school. And I got really interested in how they were learning, what they were learning, how their teachers were teaching them. And I thought I would write a book about uh, the science of learning and what, what psychology and cognitive science could tell us about learning, which is all very interesting. But when I started delving into that research, the, the research that was most interesting to me was a little bit left of center. It wasn't the straightforward science of learning stuff, but rather the stuff that suggested that it's not 
enough to say that it's the brain that does all the learning and thinking for us, that there were other outside the brain resources involved, like the body, like our physical surroundings, like our relationships with other people. And so for a while, I was just, I was kind of wandering in the wilderness a little bit, but following this breadcrumb trail of like, I feel that I feel like there's something here, you know, and I was gathering all this research that felt to me like it was related in some way but I couldn't put my finger on how it was related. And then, and then I stumbled across an article from a philosophy journal. So you can see how widely I was, I was ranging in my, in my search for the big idea that would tie together all these research findings that I found so interesting. So in this philosophy journal, I found this article was published in 1998 by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, and it was called the extended mind. And the very first line of that article really grabbed me. It said, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And to me, it was like, wow, that's a really interesting question because I feel like it has an obvious answer, right? I mean, the mind stops at the skull and the mind is identical with the brain, right? You know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, but Clark and Chalmers were arguing, no, that's, that's, yes, that's what we conventionally think, but that's wrong. And in fact, thinking extends outside of the head and encompasses, you know, the sensations and movements of our bodies and the spaces in which we learn and work and our relationships with other people, our social interactions, all those things are actually part of the thinking process. So to me, that was just kind of a mind-blowing idea. And I knew that that was the idea that could sort of pull together all these um, bodies of research that I'd been pursuing uh, without really knowing that they added up to this idea of the extended mind. Uh huh. So when you started writing the book, did you have a book deal? <laughs> I had a book deal to write about a book about the science of learning. And I haven't really talked about this, but I actually, I actually returned that advance and ended that relationship with the publisher and, and, um, Ultimately, I found a new publisher to, who would publish a book about the extended mind because that's just what I wanted to write about. And so I feel like it's kind of, a, you know, a parable to any of those, any, any writers or creators out there. Um, I, I, if, if you're thinking about, you know, um, taking the long road, the winding road, you know, sometimes that's the way to go. And I, I, I fully um support and encourage anyone who's who's pursuing a dream to like, you know, hang on to that dream and not feel like you have to end up where you started, you know, because some you don't know when you start on a big creative project, you don't always know where you're going to end up. Yeah, my mind is suddenly going to like the 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 college uh, student loan debt crisis. Like it's a good thing you didn't spend the advance. (laughs) Then Then you have to write a boring book about the science of learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I st- I should say, I still find the science of learning really interesting. But what I was looking for was a big theory, like kind of like the grand uh, un- unifying theory of learning that would m- pull all these pieces together. And I never found that. And I'll tell you my theory of why that is. I have a theory of why I didn't find a theory, which is that the brain is, um, you know, nobody designed the brain, evolution in a sense, designed the brain, but the brain is this um, quirky, idiosyncratic, you know, biological organ that evolved to solve a bunch of problems that 
are in many ways different from the problems that we ask it to solve these mm-hmm. days. Like the brain never evolved to, you know, learn calculus or to, or to grasp the magnitude of climate change, for example. I mean, there's all kinds of problems we confront in the world today that uh, come that arise in a sense, from the gap between what our very limited and specific biological brain is, is um, it has evolved to do and what we ask of it in our modern world. And that's actually the key to the extended mind because the extended mind says, yeah, the brain can't do it all on its own because it is this limited, specific, quirky organ. It needs to pull in all these other outside the brain resources into the thinking process in order to do the the huge feats that we really kind of expect of it today. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. It's from my my understanding of of the development of the brain is that it has made like evolutionary leaps, like mm-hmm. from you know it, it it got like we have these three brains sort of one on top of the other, and like you know so I can look around today and say, boy, when are we going to get our fourth brain that allows us <laughs> to you know be kind to people on the other side of the world and not destroy mm-hmm. the planet? And you're you're kind of saying like we have it. It's just not going to be inside our skulls in the same way that the internet is uh-huh. not inside my computer. Uh-huh. Yeah, we don't we don't really have time to wait for evolution to to evolve the fourth brain for us. <laughs> we can we can grasp it now, you know, but it's going to be external to the skull. You're exactly right. We need to employ our external brain if we're going to do all those, if we're going to meet the moment, you know, if we're going to meet the the challenges, the very daunting and complex challenges that are of our world today. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of the things I got from the book is the idea is like, we really need to honor our evolutionary heritage in, in sort of understanding like what this thing was designed for so that we can, you know, apply it in a, in a very unnatural environment and sort of mm-hmm. begin to, um, you know, make it at home again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so before we get to that, though, I'm really curious, like you said, you, you started kind of doing this as a almost, I don't know if you said, you didn't say like an advocacy project for your kids, but it seems like it was mm-hmm. like sort of self-interested, like how can I help mm-hmm. them get the best education? How can I help their school? Mm-hmm. And when I think about my schooling and how little it resembled anything re- like the wisdom that you're sharing here, mm-hmm. 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 Like, could you t- talk about like w- if we reverse engineer mm-hmm. schooling? Yeah. Like, what what are the what are the what's our current understanding of the brain based? Like, if we if an alien came down and looked at our school system, and you know, and but our brains were a black box. Like, yeah. How, what would what would they report back? How would they how would they yeah. say this is how humans run? I you know I think. Uh, an education system designed around the extended mind would look very different from the educational system we have now. And I think if a, if an alien were to land in the middle of a, of a, um, a, an American public school, it would say, Oh, um, looks like there's a bunch of, of um, computers on legs, you know, that are walking around and, and we're treating and they're being treated like computers on legs, but Somehow it doesn't seem to be working very well. Uh, maybe the, I'm stretching this uh, this story a little too far beyond where it makes sense. But my point is that um, if we were to design an education system from the ground up, we would not treat children like little computers. We would treat them like um, embodied creatures who need to move, who have um, 
all kinds of embodied resources that help them think that that need to be given free reign. Um, you know, I'm talking about gesturing and moving and being in touch with the internal sensations of our bodies also, all of which are kind of discouraged by the way we run education these days, having kids sit still at desks and, um, and not get as much physical activity as they need. Um, and we would, uh, we'd also acknowledge that the place where people do their thinking, where students do their learning is incredibly important to, to how well thinking and learning happens. And we would design those places very differently, I think, than many of our schools are designed. And finally, we would recognize that children, like adults, are fundamentally social and their social brains don't turn off just because they've entered a classroom. And in fact, those really powerful social brains that human beings have evolved can be harnessed in the service of learning and and working and thinking um, and not separated the way we do now, thinking that academic and intellectual life is one thing and social life is another and that they're different and in some way sort of opposed, you know? So I think if we, if we designed education to recognize children as embodied, embedded social creatures, we'd, um, we'd really be reinventing education. And I think in a way that would be much more, much more effective and much more enjoyable than schooling is now. Mm. Like I was a school teacher for many years and I can sort oh. of, you know, count my sins. Like, you know, I remember like, you know, the, like the terrible moments, like the specific, like real struggles with kids who were fidgeting in math class mm-hmm. and the importance of them sitting still and the two kids mm-hmm. who were talking to each other and how I separated mm-hmm. them. And mm-hmm. One of them even had to sit out in the hallway so they could do their work. Yeah, and yeah. So like when you say like brain, you know, mind as computer, you're basically saying like it work, my laptop works the same everywhere. It doesn't start opening new programs because I go to the coffee shop or the beach. <laughs> right, 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 right. And but it's the pretty human much brain is quite different from that. Yeah, yeah. but also the computer is pretty fixed. Like I've got my chip, mm-hmm. and like this computer is really fast. That one's really slow. This one can do parallel processing. This one is good with graphics. Like we're we're basically you know, the computer model is sort of a fixed mindset of intelligence. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, there's so many ways in which the computer, the brain as computer metaphor is, is limited and limiting. Um, but it's so pervasive, you know, it's, it shows up in the words we use to describe our own brains. And it shows up in the assumptions we make about how to treat our brains. And the unfortunate thing is that treating the brain like a computer cuts us off from the wellsprings of human intelligence, which is different from computer intelligence. So we, a lot of our intelligence arises from the fact that we have bodies, from the fact that we are sensitive to our surroundings, from the fact that we are this incredibly social species. So when we treat the brain like a computer, we're really underestimating the brain. You know, we're really misjudging the brain and we're also missing out on a lot of the things that make it truly smart. Mm. So let's 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 talk about that. So, you know, every chapter I read, I was like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing chapter. But so I'll, so I'll start with my first love, the, the, the chapter about our, you know, our bodies, thinking with uh-huh. our bodies. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so for me, the the hero of the cha- the two heroes of the chapter were Damasio uh-huh. and, and uh-huh. Mark Fenton O'Grevy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so can you describe the, the, the Damasio study on those card decks yeah. and skin conductance? 
Yeah. So Antonio Damasio is this very, you know, eminent neuroscientist at the University of Southern California. And he did this classic experiment where um, I'll simplify it a little bit, but basically he had study participants play a digital card game in which they were to turn over, uh, choose which cards to turn over from four, one of four, you know, from four decks of cards and with the aim of maximizing their wins and, and minimizing their losses. And he just kind of said, go. And they started, you know, turning over cards. What they didn't know, what the participants, study participants didn't know is that two of the decks were good in the sense of they held lots of rewards and two of the decks were bad. They had lots of penalties. And it took the uh, study participants a long, relatively long time to figure that out on a conscious level. But meanwhile, their, uh, their nervous system arousal was being monitored through a, a device that was attached to their fingers. And very soon after they started turning cards over, it, the, the measure of nervous system arousal showed that their bodies were, get, were getting wise to the fact that two, two of the decks were good, two of the decks were rewarding, and two of the decks had de- held danger, basically held a threat because they, they held many more penalties and losses. So um, it, that was a, an, a beautiful demonstration of the fact that the body actually can be smarter than the brain. It can be more rational. It can catch on to things a lot faster and interestingly, a follow-up experiment found that those people who are more attuned to their bodies, who are more aware of what's going on in their bodies, were able to become conscious of, of, um, of what was going on with those decks sooner, because pr- precisely because they were kind of picking up on the, um, the information that was being, that could yeah. only, only be channeled through the, that bodily um, uh, channel. Um, and, and that was not immediately available to conscious, the conscious, uh, the conscious mind. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering whether teaching people sort of conscious reappraisal skills could help like someone like me to say, like, pay attention to that instead mm. of just trying to count cards mm. or whatever mm. cognitive strategy, mm. like mm-hmm. that thing is that's happening. Isn't just lunch. It's like mm-hmm. relevant. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, well, we're we're in lots of situations, right, where there's more information than our conscious minds can process, and and yet um, there's an, another level of of processing, not that's a, on a non-conscious level. And the way we have access to that is these internal cues and signals. It's kind of the body tapping us on the shoulder and saying, "Hey, you know, pay attention. Something's going on here." And yet, our ideas about how thinking works um, tell us to they often tell us to suppress the body, like kind of power through and just, just use your brain, keep working your brain as hard as possible and, and ignore the body when really the body is this repository of really rich information. If we tune into it. And so, you know, that, in that context, you bring up the work of Daniel Kahneman, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Um, whose book, Thinking Fast and Slow, posits these two systems, system one, which is very sort of quick and reactive, and system two, which is much more deliberative. And the way he kind of framed it was system two is better, mm-hmm. but it's slower. Mm-hmm. So you know, we need system one to get us out of danger. But the mm-hmm. problem is we use system one too much because system two is so expensive cognitively. And, right. Right, and you're, kind of, you know, and Mark Fenton, Ogrevy and you're sort of arguing like not exactly like yeah. there is there's that system one may actually be better 
as well as faster uh, because our, our, our bodies are not subject to all those cognitive biases that the behavioral economists have been, you know, sort of cataloging for decades right, now. Right. And the behavioral economists and the psychologists like Kahneman, their solution to all those heuristics and biases that they've cataloged so thoroughly is like, well, use system two to, to consciously correct your bias, to notice your biases and correct them. Well, that's a really slow process and it's a really cognitively draining process. And it's, it's, um, it's just going to be very hard to implement in a, in a fast changing dynamic kind of situation. Whereas the body, um, as you were saying, can bypass a lot of those um, cognitive biases that, are, that the brain is subject to. Um, and, you know, um, Mark Fenton O'Creevy talks about um, keeping an interoception journal. And I, I should say interoception is, is the technical term for this, what we've been talking about, being aware of your internal sensations. Um, keeping a journal because, um, you know, your body may not always steer you in the right direction. It's the process of learning, just like we, we expect our brain to, to learn and um, improve based on, on past experiences. We can actually do the same with our bodies, with our, interos- with our interoception and train it and learn from it so that um, we know when it's steering us right and when to maybe, you know, double check with that system two thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the way I interface with that information um, is, you know, I teach a lot of people about health, about being living a healthy lifestyle, adopting healthy habits in, in particular moments. I train coaches. And one of the things we see is that when people are basically in some sort of stress reaction, mm. in fight or flight, or in a kind of fold, like, you know, like the, the mouse in the cat's mouth is just going to go limp, like we can do a version of that too, mm. that we... When we're under stress, um, that's not physical. That's like, mm. you know, if the stress is not the cars bearing down on us or the saber toothed tiger, when it's stress based on our, our internal world, that mm. means we're sort of, we're out of connection with our bodies. Mm. And we see this a lot with people who have suffered traumas, mm. but I, w- I would argue that we are in a traumagenic mm. culture mm. that, that all of us to some extent are out of our bodies. And when mm. I think about like a baby, is totally interoceptive. Like, mm-hmm. the, like it's it's like a it's like a thing that we have had beaten out of us mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by this culture. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, again, how how would the school of your dreams mm-hmm. help help mm-hmm. kids be interoceptive? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know, it, this has been very heartening to see. There are some programs. Um, springing up at schools around the world to help kids identify their interoceptive sensations and to um, to explore them, to bring them to bring them into the conversation, um, which I think is is wonderful because again, this isn't something we're taught how to do. Our education is so brain centric, it's so neurocentric. It's all about training the brain and we act as if the body doesn't exist, you know, um, or, or it doesn't exist for the purposes of, of education when really, um, so much of the self-regulation that kids need to need to do when they're in school, so much of the, um, self-management in terms of motivation and persistence, that's all going to be based on, um, this, you know, kind of internal gauge of how much energy we have to tackle a task, how much, 
we may need to um, prepare ourselves or conversely to recover after a challenge. And all of that depends on having a very closely attuned sense of how our body is doing, you know? So in my, in the school of my dreams, that would be part of education, learning to tune into your body and uh, work with those messages rather than pushing them away in the service of academic learning. Hmm. And you also mentioned, in addition to brain as uh, mind as computer, you talk about mind as muscle and yeah. the whole, you know, growth mindset and Angela Duckworth's work on grit. And, you know, there's definitely truth to the fact that we can get better at things by, by challenging ourselves and that we absolutely can grow. And at the same time, the way it's, it's kind of weaponized mm-hmm. in our culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that, that uh, Carol Dweck or Duckworth, you know, necessarily, um, you know, agree with this or, or approve mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's weaponized to say, override your physical limitations with your mind, Be, decide, yes. decide exactly. to overwork here. Right? Yes, that that yes. seems counterproductive. I think that's right. I think, unfortunately, growth mindset and grit, which are, are both ideas uh, that I admire and I admire their, their progenitors, uh, Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworth. But I do think that they fit right in with a kind of puritanical, a kind of punitive um, strain in our culture, which says that like the way to get good at something, the way to perform well is just to crush it, you know, <laughs> to like to just keep working your brain like it's a muscle. And this is where the weaponization comes in, you know, like it's a muscle until you're exhausted, until you can't give anymore, you know, and that that's a very frustrating message for a lot of kids because again, the theory of the extended mind would say the brain can't do it all alone. The brain needs to recruit these outside the brain resources. So if we're telling kids that it's all about the muscle inside their heads, you know, the, the quote unquote muscle of the brain, um, we're, we're not letting them know that there's a lot of other options and avenues that they can be turning to in a moment when they feel frustrated or they feel like their brain isn't, isn't up to the task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of backward steps we can take that mm-hmm. are actually going to help us move forward. And by the way, that, that, that stuff about the muscle isn't true for the muscles either. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. I guess that's right. You mean like working them to exhaustion is not, is not the best tack either. Yeah, usually not. Like I, I've just, I've just started, you know, this wearable called whoop that's sort mm-hmm. of measuring, you know, my sleep and uh, my heart rate and, and like, it's telling me every day, like how hard to go today. And, mm. and about half of the days it's saying, dude, mm-hmm. back off, maybe even take a nap. Right? And that's, <laughs> oh, I, and that's, I need tw- to get this wearable. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Right. Just, I get, you get the $15 knockoff. that just says take a nap every take day. Nap. Right. That's yeah. all I need. <laughs> well, sleep is very important to thinking, but yeah. Yeah. That's just, just that, you know, we are organisms. Mm-hmm. And so, right. and so, you know, we have this complex interplay. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Yeah. I uh, always like to say that we're more like animals than we are like machines, you know, and, but unfortunately we treat ourselves like we're machines, like we're computers. Right. Or, you know, I would say like, we are literally animals. We are animals. Right. We are. <laughs> animals. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, you know, the other thing I was thinking about, so um, let's, let's, let's um, talk about the you know movement and you had this, mm-hmm. this, this beautiful study that was that basically caused a a crisis in the in the field where people were saying like if we're doing this kind of work why are we even doing it's mm-hmm. about the radiologists 
Oh, oh, right, right, right. Right, yeah. saying like that's not science, and it yes. and it wasn't because yeah. the study wasn't done well; it's because they didn't like the conclusions. Can, yeah. can you just describe the study and the findings? Sure. Yeah. So, um, radiologists, as in the course of their work, they look at sometimes thousands of images a day. You know, and they're so they're sitting looking very intently at these images, looking for abnormalities that are very subtle and hard to, hard to discern. Um, so at one particular radiologist decided to, um, well, he first he, he kind of um, put on his own experiment by creating a walking a treadmill kind of station where he could be walking as he viewed these images and he, you know, lost 15 pounds, but he also found that he, he thought he was actually his, um, his perception, his, his discernment was, was, was improved as a result of being active rather than sitting while looking at these slides. So he designed a study to test this and found that indeed um, radiologists who were walking as they were looking at slides um, they, they, they um, improved their accuracy of, of determining abnormalities. And there's actually a, a separate body of research finding that actually our, our, um, our visual acuity does, is enhanced, does improve when we're moving. And it makes sense from a, again, an evolutionary point of view, a biological point of view, because when we're walking, when we're moving through our environment, we're usually, we're searching, we're looking for things, you know, whereas when we're and when we're sedentary, when we're sitting, that's a signal to our body that we're not, we're at rest. We're not, we don't need to perceive our environment in such detail. Um, so actually our visual acuity does go up when we're, when we're on the move. But what was funny was that once this study by the radiologist was published, another radiologist wrote into the journal and said, what a waste of time and money. Like what, what is, what's going to, what are we, what's the world coming to basically <laughs> like what a crazy idea. I thought this was a joke when I read it, you know, something like that. And it just, it really brought home the fact that we, we, in our culture, we're so convinced of the idea that mind and body are separate. They have nothing to do with each other and mind brain is where it all happens. And the body is, you know, this irrational, ungovernable entity that has like nothing to contribute to intelligent thought. So I thought that was pretty striking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, the, the, the emo Phillips gag about the brain. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. He says, I used to think the brain was the most amazing organ in my body until I realized who was telling me this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. I mean, we've really been led astray by, by the brain's own sort of like press office, you know, publicity agent. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I just now realized why, why I wasted $160 last year. Mm. Um, So I play ultimate Frisbee Mm -hmm. and I wasn't catching all that well. And so I went to, I went to um, the optometrist to, uh, again, we got my eyes checked and then I got, uh, I was fitted for contact lenses that really, you know, sort of improved my vision. But I realized like I had to stop wearing them on the field. Huh. I, I wasn't seeing as well with them as we, with, without them huh. because I was fitted. I was sitting absolutely still, ah. right? Not only was I still, but I was like, Bless you. I was like really still. Like I had a thing. Right. You, know? you were you were literally being restrained. I was yeah. Being restrained. And then oh, and, how interesting. And my sight under those circumstances was quite different from my sight mm-hmm. when I'm running hmm. on, a, on a grassy field. Yeah. And I'm just Maybe realizing they need to design a new test, you know, for for um 
for some types of, of contact lenses. Yeah. Well, that's uh, maybe that walking treadmill. Yeah. 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 With the so restraint. Yeah. Um, and, um, so, but it was, you know, so visually it makes sense, mm -hmm. but also I know you were just on, um, my co-author Peter Bregman's podcast. And I don't, I don't know if he talked to you about how we wrote the book that we wrote together. He didn't, he didn't talk okay. about that. Oh, the bum. <laughs> <laughs> He <laughs> basically, you know, the, the way we decided to do is I was going to write the first draft, uh, but it's, it was largely his material. He's, you know, he's come up with it. He was, I, you know, I learned it from him. So the way we would do it is he was, you know, was during COVID, he was out of New York City. He was up in uh, the, you know, the, the mountain house. Mm -hmm. And he was like, hey, do you mind? Like, do I need to be at a computer right now? I'm like, no, I'll record this. I'll take notes. And I said, great. So he would get on his hiking boots and he would go for walks. And, and we, hmm. we basically like every day we talked for an hour or two while he was up and down on the mountain. Oh, huh. and he was saying like, this is so good. I'm so grateful that you're, you're there in your office suffering while I'm, you know, on these beautiful hikes. Yeah. Cause, Cause we had, you know, we had real problems with the manuscript. There were things we just, we couldn't figure out how to say. Mm. And I knew like if on his walks, he would be like, okay, here's how, here's what I'm thinking. Mm. And it was it was death. It was clear to both of us that on his walks, he was a much better collaborator. Wow. Interesting. Well, I tell that story in the book about Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman walking together and having, you know, Daniel Kahneman says something like I had the I did the best thinking of my life on walks with Amos. So the two of them together were walking. Maybe next time you and Peter can arrange it so that you're both on the move. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'll just uh, I'll just have to record it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and by the way, you know, one, one of the, uh, the the highlights of this podcast was a was a, an interview with Barbara Tversky, whose whose work uh, you you cite, yes. and I great admire time. greatly. Yes, like boy, is she a luminary, and mm -hmm. and nobody's heard of her. She's she her her work deserves to be much better known. Her book Mind in Motion is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Yep. Yep. Um. So, but, but there's, you know, in other words, there's other types of intelligence that are enhanced by, by moving, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's physical moving through space or this whole, this amazing chapter on gesture mm -hmm. where we, our bodies seem to learn things first. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, the body is really gets there first before the relatively slower conscious mind. Yeah. That was really cool to learn that our newest and most advanced ideas often show up first in our, in our gestures before we're really able to put words to an idea. And then we actually can kind of read off our hands and, and that informs our verbal account. So in that way, think uh, gesturing actually advances the thought process. It's not just a kind of hand waving that accompanies, you know, the real action, which is our speech. It's actually um, leading the way often. It's really the leading edge of our thinking. Yeah. In fact, last night I was on a coach training call and I was explaining this, um, this concept from a, a body of work called ACT, uh, hmm. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And I was oh. saying, I was talking about like a choice point, mm -hmm. like where you can either do the thing you want to do. And, and so as I was doing it, I put my hands together. <laughs> so listeners are going to just imagine my hands in front of my face and uh -huh. making a V with at the base of the palms. Uh -huh. And so I was describing it like that. And then talking about like, it's hard at that point to think about your long-term goals, but it's much easier to think about your values. 
And one uh, of the trainees, Patty goes, Hey, V for values. <laughs> like, that's, that's amazing. And like, yeah. we all immediately like memorized it. Yeah. From, yeah. Like well, and also I think that's a good example, Howie, of a gesture capturing something that's very hard to capture in words, which is a, a dynamic spatial kind of relational concept. And it's actually much easier to express and to get across with um with gestures than with words so i'm not surprised that you reach for a gesture at that at that moment yeah and i wasn't even aware that i was doing it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right i was just trying to describe like there's this point and it bifurcates into two possible uh outcomes and the hands the hands were doing it uh, you know on their own yeah yeah because that's really a spatial metaphor you're kind of talking about two different paths and a decision point where you're trying to decide which path and and gestures are especially good at capturing spatial ideas and, and words can really be very inadequate when it comes to that. Right. And one of your points is that the brain is basically an organ that navigates us through space. Right. Like that's and its that job. It, yes. And it, that's what it does so easily and effortlessly because that's what it evolved to do. And that when we think about abstract concepts, the brain sort of, sort of borrows that architecture that it, it uses for navigating three-dimensional landscapes and applies it to the landscape of ideas in a sense. And so that once we know that, once we know that our minds are treating abstract ideas as if it's a physical landscape, then we can kind of use that in terms of um, turning our ideas into something like a, a landscape that we can navigate through. You know, if it's like a big concept map um, or um, a multi-monitor setup instead of, you know, looking at this tiny little screen. There's lots of ways that we can take advantage of those embodied resources that really are our birthright as, as human beings. All right. And, and, you know, I realized this morning, just preparing for our talk, that um, I, there was a moment where I'm not as smart as I thought I was, which was all through junior high and high school, I was in the orchestra for the school musical. Mm. And, and, and inevitably, we would the orchestra would learn the lyrics before the cast would, which was odd <laughs> because they like before they could before they could sort of block out and move, they would just sing the song. They'd stand on stage and sing the song. Yeah. And like one year we did Annie Get Your Gun. And there's this really complicated song. Anything you can do, I can do better. That has mm. sort of the same refrain over and over again with different topics and words. And the actors could never get it. And and like, mm. like the other viol, I was in the violin section. We were all like looking at each other going, <laughs> we're a lot smarter than they are. <laughs> like, but it was I, because you were connecting those words to your own movements as a musician. That's think? my guess is we were, we were, you know, uh-huh. sweating like crazy and they were standing there uh-huh. With, uh-huh. with, with the words in front of them, trying to remember them, uh-huh. trying, you know, opening the binder. Oh, I, I got a peek again. Interesting. That's so interesting. I, I've never heard an example like that before, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned like when you listen to a podcast or something for the second time, it often uh-huh. comes back where you were the first time you were listening. Yeah. Yes. I notice that all the time now. Our brains have this um, automatic place log. Again, <laughs> when you think about what our brains evolved to do, it makes a lot of sense that our brains would want to know if we encountered a threat or encountered an opportunity, we want to remember where that was. So um, even without our trying to do so, we are, we're, our minds are constantly tagging um, thoughts and experiences with a location, you know, um, which is, is a strange experience to have when you 
when you are listening to a, an audiobook or even a song or something. And what's brought to mind is the last time you listened to it and where you were, you know, and you weren't, you weren't trying to think that, but the brain has done that automatically. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, your, your creepy iPhone geotags every photo you take. <laughs> yeah. The brain got there first. Yeah. And so again, like when we can take advantage of our spatial memory and treat ideas and information as if that as if they're physical objects or as if they're a 3D landscape, then we can bring in all these embodied resources that like spatial memory, like proprioception, which is our awareness of where our body is in space and all these embodied resources that really get wasted when we just try to keep everything inside our heads. Yeah, because you know, before reading this book, I really thought of like movement as a distraction. Like if I really want to learn something, mm-hmm. I should just sit still and learn it. Like if right. I'm listening to a book on tape or a podcast or something and like, okay, I'm going running because it's just too boring to run without it, but I'm not right. going to learn as much. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think I actually learn better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people will say that, um, you know, they, they, you know, people have the experience of racking their brains all morning, you know, trying to solve a problem or come up with a creative idea. And then they finally take a break and take a walk. And that's when, you know, the idea comes to them. And that's not an accident. You know, one thing I write about in the book is this idea of metaphorical movement that by moving our bodies in certain ways, we kind of prime, um, an associated idea in our minds. And when you think about walking or bike riding or moving through space, that's really a kind of loose metaphor for dynamic creative thinking. Whereas when you're sitting still, what's that like? That's like being in a rut, you know, or um, getting stuck. So we actually want to, we actually, you know, can think in terms of influencing our brain by moving our bodies, which is not the way we're used to imagining the thinking process. Yeah. And I sort of, I sort of like imagine what my brain is thinking when I'm sitting still for long periods of time, uh-huh. like it's got to make sense of that. So it's either like, you know, okay, uh-huh. either you're tired right, or right. you're injured or you're right. sick or, or nothing you're... much is going on here. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. There's, there's nobody else around. You're not being intimate. You're, you're not being social. Right. Like there must be something wrong. Like, <laughs> Let's let's yeah. shut down and conserve energy so you can fix it. Your <laughs> uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I you know that's one reason I think it's unfortunate that there's such a, a social stigma against fidgeting because fidgeting in like a long class or a long meeting is a really adaptive way of keeping us energized and alert. Um, because as you say, without that kind of movement our bodies think it's time to go to sleep, you know, and we just get very drowsy and very kind of, you know, not really, not really sharp and and with it. Um, So that kind of, even those kinds of little movements can help keep us um, alert and energized. Yeah. When my son was in fifth or sixth grade, having trouble paying attention in class, we found a sort of alternative learning specialist who prescribed him an exercise ball instead Mm -hmm. of for his chair. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> made a right. huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I, in the book, I write about activity permissive classrooms where every student's allowed to kind of move and sit or not sit and as they like. And, um, you know, the teachers who teach in these activity permissive classrooms swear that kids are more engaged and more alert. It's not distracting. It actually helps a lot of kids focus. Mm, so that's, that'd be another, um, another one of your, you know, secretary of education moves. Yes, yes. 
So I want to, before we leave, I want, I want to talk about the nature chapter. Yeah. Cause that, that seemed to me to, to like be really deep, especially in terms of the work I do with, with people around impulse control and making good mm-hmm. decisions for their mm-hmm. long-term benefit. So basically mm-hmm. you, you know, you write in the book that like nature, when we're in nature, we, we um, prioritize long-term thinking we're able to delay gratification more uh, compared to let's say an urban setting and Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that and why. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you pulled that out because uh, that's not the aspect of nature that I end up usually talking about. Usually I'm talking about how nature can restore our attention and, you know, the way that um, being in nature, the kind of, information and stimuli that we encounter in nature is very easy for our brains to process. And so um, we end up restoring our attention, kind of refilling the attentional tank when we go outside, which is a really important aspect of going outside. But yes, there's also a whole body of research suggesting that uh, nature sends us messages about the kind of world we're in and the kind of environment that we're confronting um, that encourage us to, to think, take the long view and um, to be more patient, to delay gratification. Whereas the messages that we're gathering or, or um, um, sensing from our environment in a, in a more jangly kind of urban setting um, tell us just the opposite, you know, go for the, the, the immediate gratification, the easy win, the, the, um, you know, the, the reward that's right in front of you. So um, and then there's, there's also the piece uh, about um, the effect of awe um, on our, on our thinking. And of course, the place where we're most apt to experience awe would be like in a vast, majestic kind of natural setting. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine, you know, feeling awe while looking at your, your smartphone or something, you know what I mean? So, um, and I love the, um, the researchers, Jonathan Haidt and, um, Dr. Keltner talk about awe as a reset button for the human brain, because it kind of shakes up our settled um, schemas, our our, um, accustomed ways of looking at the world. So, um, and then finally, you know, there's this um, research finding about the three day effect that, you know, even just a brief walk outside can have some of these benefits, but if you really want to uh, change the way you're thinking, um, a, a really extended exposure to nature, like three days spent uh, hiking or backpacking is, is the way to go. So for anyone who can, who's able to take three days off and be in nature, that's the thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, it's so ridiculous. It's almost like, Hey, here, you know, like we've, we've colonized Mars and we're living on, you know, this, this planet that's really inhospitable with the aid of all this like ugly technology. And it's like, Hey, one of the great hacks you can do is to go to earth for three days. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, when you get tired of the, living in the metaverse, you can like go out <laughs> and like be in real nature. Yeah. 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 So one, so one of my, one of my conspiracy theory parts of my brain was like okay, so like 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 you kind of explained the urban nature difference in terms mm-hmm. of you know delayed gratification is that when you're in urban setting you're getting this message of competition, uh-huh. so you know grab it now. Whereas in natural setting you said there's, there's less urgency because you, you see abundance and permanence. Right, right. And I'm, one, and- I'm wondering if you think like mm-hmm. does our society like uh-huh. is it is it designed to cause addiction so we will overconsume to keep the engines running. 
I, I, that's not even a conspiracy theory. I think that's just an observation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about what kinds of mental states and emotional states were put in by seeing advertising, it's all about, you know, what can you get right now? And who's that person over there that you need to outdo? And, you know, I think, um, it's all kind of set up to feed the capitalist machine, right? And nobody really makes money from nature. So nobody's really monetized nature, thankfully. Uh-huh. And um, nature, as I hope, will remain, you know, free for everybody to to enjoy and to um, spend time in with. And, and I think the more we know about these beneficial effects, hopefully the more we'll be motivated to preserve nature and people's access to nature. Right. I suddenly have a big yellow taxi playing in the back of my head. Yes, right? right. They pave paradise, put up a parking lot. Right. And you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's a great one. Yeah. Um, so the other thing about that with nature is like you write about the default mode network mm-hmm. and how it's like generative in nature. Mm-hmm. So I've done a lot of reading on the default mode network, which is which is kind of negative about it. Like it's mm-hmm. like researchers mm-hmm. are writing about it's the thing that's sort of you know, consistently telling your story about yourself and, mm. and your mm. ego, and it's keeping you from being in states of flow. And mm. it's like, it occurring to me that, well, those researchers are all researching people in labs, probably mm. in MR, fMRI machines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, is there a difference between the default ma- mode network in its default state? Mm. And when we're studying it in, in captivity? Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've encountered some of that research too. And I'm thinking about this strand of research that finds that mind wandering makes people less happy, less satisfied because they're not too, they're not present with mm-hmm. what they're doing, where they are and what they're doing at that moment. But that's assuming that you have a task that you want to be doing and your mind wandering is taking you away from that. If you're talking about being in nature there's nothing to do really. I mean, this is the beauty of being in nature, except to notice and observe and let your mind wander and let your attention be diverted here and there by nature, you know? So there might, I think there might be different functions or different outcomes from the, um, the default mode network, depending on whether you're trying to get something done, you know, Mm. or whether you're actually more open to having that kind of um, more associative diffuse kind of thinking going on. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the parts that, uh, that I love is you talk about, you know, Lee Krasner and her husband, Jackson Pollock, mm-hmm. and how, first of all, they, he, you know, he was despairing of being creative in the mm-hmm. city. Um, and then, mo- you know, moving out and, and uh, creating these sort of splash paintings that, you know, yeah. I would, I would look at and go, well, I could do that. <laughs> and I guess the point is I didn't, he did, uh-huh. but that, that, that they, they sometimes, they somehow uh, appeal to our eyes in a, in, because they have the same sort of fractal geometry as nature itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a cool story because um, apparently Pollock was painting very differently in a very different mode you know, literally at an easel making very intricate kind of paintings when he was in the city. And he only started to paint in this very loose and kind of dynamic way of splashing, um, dripping paint on the canvas once he moved to this, to, uh, to Long Island, to this very rural area, bucolic area where he was surrounded by nature. 
Yeah. And then he, amazingly enough, his, the paintings that he created when he was out there in Springs, Long Island, um, as you say, have a fractal geometry that is, is similar to that of nature. So, and may have some of the same effects on us when we're looking at a Jackson Pollock painting as, as what we get when we're looking at a tree, you know? So it's just sort of amazing that he managed to, he was so imbued with, with the nature that surrounded him that he managed to kind of get it on the canvas. Yeah. And what one story that I heard, I don't know if you know this anecdote from studying them is that apparently he, he, uh, relied on his wife Lee to tell him which side was t- was up on his paintings. <laughs> no, that's so funny. No, I'm, I'm glad she had an opinion. <laughs> yeah, apparently he couldn't do that without her. She she mm. she, she decided mm-hmm. where, where the nail went. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's really funny. That's funny. Um, looking at the re- the rest of the no- I have so many notes. I'll make sure yeah. I get all the. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to, so there was two, two more things I wanted to touch on. One, one is I've been sending your book around to all my friends in the DEI space. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. Right? Which, you know, for those who don't know, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, some people add the J for justice um, because of the, the work on the built environment and how yeah. The, 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 the environment we're in will tell us whether we are, whether we belong there, whether we're welcome, specifically around women in STEM. Um, right. Yeah. Talk, so you talk, talk a little bit about yeah. what's I'm glad you, you pulled that out that piece. Yeah. Because that's in the chapter on um, thinking with built spaces and it's about um, how our built environment as you say, can communicate to us almost instantly as we walk into a room or a building, whether we belong there, whether we have, have a feeling of belonging. In fact, the, the researcher who really um, started off this line of research called Sapnatarian at, at, um, at the University of Washington calls it ambient belonging. So the sense of like, you know, this, this um, free floating sense of belonging that is conveyed by the physical um, um, setting and, um, you know, there's another researcher, Mary Murphy, who talks about um, prejudice places and how we are used to locating prejudice in the minds of individual people. But in fact, prejudice and um, stereotypes can be embedded in our, our physical settings. And we really need to attend to um, the importance of, of the physical environment and, and attend to the messages that it's sending um, so I'm, I'm really glad that you that you you shared that with people in that space, because I think it's really an important message that we don't just need to change minds. We need to change buildings and rooms, you know, because these are the places that people are are um, sort of gathering a message about about their capabilities and their sense of belonging. Yeah. And we can be so clueless about it when we belong. Mm-hmm. Right. We're thinking, well, mm-hmm. the, this is neutral. And mm-hmm. I'd have to do a whole bunch of weird stuff to make other people uh, put up, I don't know, Krishna, mm-hmm. you know, statues or, mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. right. As, as if, you know, Star Wars toys and Legos is default and houseplants and artwork mm-hmm. is weird. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there is a, some, some movement in this area. I see some movement in the realm of, taking a look at whose portraits are hanging on the wall, you know, and in so many of our institutions, um, those faces were exclusively white and male for so long. And now 
people are beginning to uh, realize that diversity is not just about the people in a building, but the representations of, of people and, and an organization's history that's presented in this very permanent, um, you know, um, stable way that that could, that too can be challenged and that too can be um, altered. Right. And, and, you know, that fascinating study, which reminded me of the work um, I read about in Whistling Vivaldi by Claude Steele around the um, Asian uh-huh. Uh-huh. women uh-huh. who were either before a math test were either put in a room that reminded them that they were Asian or reminded them that they were female. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. they were reminded they were Asian, they like aced the test. And when they were right. reminded they were female, they did poorly. Yeah, yeah. Which just goes to show you, I mean, we have met, we have multiple facets to our identities, right? And so if we want to think well in a given setting, we want to surround ourselves with cues of identity and cues of belonging that actively support the identity that we want to be exercising in that space. So that's something, you know, I, I would love for um, school leaders and and man- managers and and corporate leaders to think about, but we ourselves can take some on some of that in terms of how we appoint and how we arrange our own personal learning and working spaces. Yeah, I've been doing some redecoration since reading. You know, like ways in which I I have objects here that can hold for me identities that are important to me in this space. Oh, good, good, good. I'm looking at what's behind you and wondering if maybe that sign that says play. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, you know, I've got the, the Doctor Who's TARDIS <laughs> and um, the Silly Walks from Monty Python. Nice. So this, this is all reminders that I can get so damn serious. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that, Howie. Yeah. Um, so we're at the, at the base of the hour, it's, you know, you have a, a beautiful chapter at the end that kind of, it doesn't really recap, but it kind of encapsulates mm-hmm. and makes sort of high level suggestions for people who are, who are listening, like who are, uh, everyone should go read the book, but mm-hmm. for those, you know, the 1% who decide not to, what's, <laughs> yeah. what's the, what's sort of the takeaway? Yeah. 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 Well, interestingly, cause we've been talking about how would I invent, how would I reinvent education along the lines of the extended mind? I intended that final chapter to be, I think I even call it like a curriculum of the extended mind. Like what if we were to really take seriously the idea that we all need a second education in how to use these outside the brain resources, what would the curriculum for that kind of education be? And I think um, the takeaway for me would be uh, the, the point that we think we don't just think with our brains, obviously we think with as we've been saying uh, throughout this program with our bodies, with our spaces, with our relationships. And I love the idea that I share from philosopher Andy Clark, where he talks about how humans are intrinsically loopy creatures. And what he means by that is that our biological, our human kind of intelligence benefits from looping our ideas and our knowledge out of our heads and through our bodies, our spaces, our relationships with other people. And the more, every time we create a cognitive loop like that, we're enriching our thought processes. We're um, making them better. And that's what we want to think about doing instead of imagining thinking as, as keeping it all inside our heads. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I want to, I want to end with the last page of the book, which, mm. which just, 
hit me so beautifully. Mm. So you're talking and I, and I, it's funny cause I had just been doing another podcast where John Rawls came up. Who's a, a philosopher mm-hmm. who came up with sort of a theory, you know, a theory of justice mm-hmm. and, you know, the veil of ignorance, like you're mm-hmm. designing the world and mm-hmm. you're going to live in it, but you don't know what parts you're going to play. Right. 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 And so you, en- you end up by, by saying, acknowledging the reality of the extended mind might well lead us to embrace the extended heart. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could like, what did you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended there because I wanted to suggest to people that as long as we imagine that intelligence is a lump of something that's sealed inside an individual's head, then all the things we do now, like, like assess people and rank people and reward people based on this supposed lump of intelligence um, in, in people's heads, larger or smaller, makes sense. But in the light of the extended mind, the theory of the extended mind, it doesn't make sense because so much of what constitutes our thinking processes depends on our access to these outside the brain resources, which are in no way equally distributed. So Mm -hmm. once we see that and we see how we're all creatures of the world and dependent on the particular kind of world that we live in, could we open up our hearts more and, and understand that um, we're not individuals. We're all creatures of, of, again, of our particular little universe that we occupy. Could we see each other more in the round as, as whole human beings and um, judge, judge each other, not as brains, but as, as whole human beings. Mm, Right. And also getting from that, like, what I fear is that someone's going to read your book at like Sidwell Friends or, you know, Choate and Exeter. Mm -hmm. And those kids are going to get all the benefits of the, you know, the moving classroom and Mm -hmm. the the recess. And and meanwhile, the poor the poor kids in the under-resourced schools are going to get the, you know, America at risk curriculum Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of more time at the desk work, Mm -hmm. you know, in school at summers, Saturday sessions, you're right. Just more of what doesn't work. Yes. I, I, I very much um, fear that too. And I think that's already happening. All all these um, wonderful mind extending opportunities are, are, are much more available to affluent and privileged kids. Um, But hopefully, (laughs) you know, hopefully my book is one is at least putting the knowledge out there for everybody to, to use, to make, you know, to make the world um, a little more equal in that, in that respect, in terms of extension equality. That's, that's like one thing that I think we ought to work towards. Yeah. And I think it it just, it, it makes sense to most people that, you know, well, yeah, you're, you know, you're a, you know, Elon Musk is a genius, so he deserves to be a trillionaire. Mm. You know, like people can believe that, but, it's hard to believe that two kids should be given such unequal chances in life. Mm-hmm. And that, and that how they come out or their outcomes somehow reflect something absolutely inherent and innate to them and not to all the resources to which they had access or didn't have access. Yeah. Yeah. And how we, how we valorize, you know, the, the one person who makes it from mm-hmm. a, from a certain environment is as if to say, see anyone could do it. Yes. Yes. That's a very bad habit of our, of our society. Mm-hmm. So, but there's so much in, in, in this book and, you know, the, the research that's ongoing 
mm-hmm. that is is so that is actually I find extremely democratizing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm glad and, you, you know, that. yeah, I agree. I mean, when I think about this school, it actually costs less, <laughs> right? It's, it, I was thinking about like myself being a teacher in that school. I would have had more energy. Mm. I would have had mm. less burnout. Mm. I wouldn't have had to be so well-trained on classroom management. Mm. Mm. Like, you know, this is like, you know, this is a very naturalistic way of being in the world that doesn't require uh, so much, like it requires less intervention and technology than the world we've created yes because the the world we've created is quite artificially constrained you know i mean the the brain is naturally and automatically integrated with the body it's it's our culture that has separated them or or tried to separate them yeah it's it it is kind of crazy how much effort we put into cutting ourselves off from the actual wellsprings of our own human intelligence yeah all right. Well, I'll, I'll leave there except to say um, you're working on anything exciting now. Anything new? <laughs> uh, you know, I am. I was uh, I would say I was a bit radicalized by writing this book in terms of just what we've been talking about, this question of extension inequality. So that's kind of where I want to go next with this idea. Ooh, awesome. Have you seen the new uh, book, The Dawn of Everything? I've read about it. Yeah, I have. I have not. I have not been able to read it yet, but. Looks okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you, if you want your radicalization to get radicalized, <laughs> that's, the, that's the place to go next. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, Annie Murphy, Paul, thank you. This has been such a delightful conversation. It's so, it's so wonderful, like such a privilege to have a podcast where I can have a conversation with a book and then have a conversation with the author. It's like such a treat. And yeah. I, I, first, you know, it's so beautifully written. It's so entertaining so wise, so rich, and, and so important for us. So thank you so much for doing it and for taking the time today. Oh, thanks so much for your kind words, Howie. I really, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking with you. All right. Awesome. I hope you get the book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain by Annie Murphy Paul. If you do and you write a review or tweet about it or Facebook about it or write a blog post, mention that you heard it here. That helps me to get some appreciation from the authors that I do have on, and it makes it easier for me to uh, attract other authors if they know that I have an active reading and responding community. Uh, The show notes for today's episode, including a link to that uh, article that started it all, The Extended Mind by Clark and Chalmers, You can find it at plantyourself.com slash 493. All right, quickly, garden news. Um, My town is giving away free mulch on Wednesday mornings. So I'm going there with the truck, picking it up, and we are bolstering a bunch of beds, uh, adding some uh, pre-digested nutrients, and also got a load of mushroom compost, which has gone up in price tremendously from like $53 a cubic yard to last yesterday I paid like 70 So we're going to have to be a little more penurious with that and uh, work harder at creating our own compost. But we got the garlic in the ground. And, uh, you know, one thing I love about the late fall, early winter is it, you know, kills all the plants. So the garden kind of looks neat and tidy. 
In movement news, um, I started rehabbing the knee today. I did about 25 minutes of uh, monkey bar gym exercises for strengthening the leg and the knee, and it really isn't hurting. I was able to sort of clamber up on the, the bed of the truck to get the mushroom compost off without a lot of wincing and pain and uh, fiddling. So uh, thank you, John and Jesse, for Monkey Bar Gym, and I'm going to keep doing it. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Iza Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Lenin, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.